episode 19 of the Water Break Podcast. Here's your host, Heather Jennings. Welcome to Water Break, where we try to bridge the gap between water operators and engineers. In today's episode, we're going to discuss the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, or BIL. Our guest today is Michael Preston, who is a legislative analyst for the National Rural Water Association, or the NRWA. And Michael is the legislative and policy analyst for the NRWA and has worked for small and rural communities in Washington for over a decade. Michael works within the halls of Congress and at USDA, EPA, and the DOL to procure funding for rural America's water and infrastructure industry. Michael is also into biking, swimming, and triathlons. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, Heather. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to do this. Oh, I am too. But before we start uh, talking about infrastructure, there was something else you wanted to share. Yes. I just want to say our hearts go out to all those impacted by the dozens of tornadoes that uh, ripped across six states last weekend. Uh, it's yeah. been on top of mind and it's just been so tragic to to watch the coverage. I mean, it truly is just absolutely heartbreaking and devastating. But some of the worst damage was in Kentucky. And I've been interfacing with our Kentucky Rural Water Association executive director. He's definitely plugged into the ag and rural community across that state. He actually put this note out on, if you don't mind, I'm just going to read it real quick. His office, their office, Kentucky Rural Water Association is in Bowling Green, and they did experience some minor damage from the storms. Their power has been restored, uh, but the office is still without phone or internet. Maybe by the time this is made public, they'll be up and running in that department. But he just wanted to say that they are continuing to assess and ensure support to Western Kentucky utilities while also rendering aid where they can. In Bowling Green, many lives and landscapes have been altered, but the spirit of the community and camaraderie is alive and well. Actions will speak louder than words, and we are simply awestruck by the outpouring of love and compassion being shown around Bowling Green and in other communities that were in the, in the path of the storm's ravages. So I just wanted to, to note Kentucky Rural Water's emergency response efforts and going above and beyond, and as well as the other state rural water associations that are responding in, in a timely manner like this to get systems back up and running, the, the predicate to modern life. So anyhow, please Heather, let's let's turn back to today's topic. But I don't want to forget donations can be made to the Kentucky Agricultural Relief Fund, and we'll find those links in the show notes. Great point. Yes. So on to infrastructure. On November 6th, 2021, Congress passed the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, also known as the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, or I'm saying BIL. It could be Bill. Which one is it, Michael? <laughs> Go with go with Bill and we'll all go know what, we, what you mean. Yeah. OK, so in summary, the bill is to rebuild America's roads, bridges and rails, expand access to clean drinking water, ensure every American has access to high speed Internet, tackle the climate crisis, advance environmental justice and invest in communities that have too often been left behind. So, Michael, with all that being said, what do you think this means to our country and our communities? This is absolutely a landmark piece of legislation. It has been a topic on the top of mind of every federal elected official for many, many, many years. And I must say this year, the Christmas tree lighting on the west front of the Capitol, I think it was a little more energetic and enthusiastic just because Congress was actually able to get the job done this year. Like you said, early November, November 5th, the House passed 
the bipartisan infrastructure law. That's what it's colloquially called around here. It's actually called the Infrastructure Investment in Jobs Act of 2021, but that title is is kind of gone by the wayside. Uh-huh. But it really, it really, HR 3684 that was what the Senate voted on back in August in a bipartisan manner. I think the the key term that I wanted to highlight here is bipartisan uh, because it passed in the Senate 69 to 30. And as you all know, the political makeup, the Republican and Democratic makeup of the Senate is 50-50 down the line. And to, so to have 19 United States Republican senators join the ranks of the majority Democrats to pass this thing was music to everybody's ears. And just in the Washington, D.C. scene, the IIJA, the, the bill, the infrastructure bill was kind of an incentive that the, the House leadership was using to try to work the Build Back Better Act that President Joe Biden, you know, economic agenda. That was what they were trying to use to incentivize folks to vote, not just for one or the other. Uh, but at the end of the day, there was just so much palpable energy and enthusiasm to get this infrastructure bill signed into law. And they did that, like you said, on November 5th. And it was a 228 to 206 vote in the House, which makes it rather bipartisan there too. Uh, so it was, it was very exciting. And to see Congress actually effectuate the will of the people like this, that's what they've been sent there to do. And so congratulations are in order on both sides of the aisle, House, Senate. And now the work really is just beginning because Congress has appropriated these just massive amounts of fundings to the federal agencies. And now our job is to connect local, state, and federal officials to to make sure this money goes out the door properly. I can say I was holding my breath. I'm like, please let this go through because I really feel that we've needed this kind of investment in ourselves especially in these smaller communities, you know, where more and more regulatory things are coming into place and it's, you know, solutions are in the millions of dollars. Small communities don't have that. To be honest, sometimes the bigger communities don't either. And so this, this to me is very exciting. And I love, uh, you talked about how NRWA was part of it and that you guys were part of this groundbreaking legislation. And I'd love to hear about that as well. That's a very nice question. The reason I say that, I mean, that's, I work in Washington, D.C. along with a group of colleagues up here. Our CEO and CFO is, are very, uh, you know, intertwined in our in our regular operations. But our focus in Washington mainly is to advocate for legislation and, and policy that benefits the National Rural Water Association membership. And, and you know, National represents 49 at this moment uh, state rural water associations that on their level, uh-huh. you total up all their membership. They represent 31,000 water and wastewater systems across this country. That's, I think, 90, 91% of the, the systems in this country serve populations of 10,000 or less. So that is the nucleus, the the genesis of all of our work up here in Washington is to is to make sure the voices and the stances and the needs and demands of the folks that work in these small and rural communities and, and have to operate these water and wastewater systems are heard. And so we were just like you. We couldn't agree more. I think this country really needed it. And it's really exciting to see EPA Administrator Reagan the day after the bill passed the House. He said this marks the single largest investment in water that the federal government has ever made. It's nothing short of transformational. NRWA CEO Matt Holmes on November 8th, he put out a statement that said this legislation and water infrastructure funding will be remembered as one of the most significant public water and wastewater initiatives in the country, especially in rural America. $55 billion, Heather. I mean, that is just 
drinking water, wastewater, storm water, infrastructure in general. This makes me want to dance. <laughs> I know. I know. We are, we are resource rich for the short and medium term, really. I just want to actually just one more caveat. My CEO, Matt Holmes, is actually in Washington, D.C. Since we were preparing for this talk just two days ago, Heather, he got an email from the White House and asked him to come up here and uh, kind of talk about how they're going to disperse this money and how to make those connections to the state and local level. And he's also meeting to talk about the the latest iteration of the lead and copper rule, which I think is going to be uh, announced either later today and more details are forthcoming. But uh, he's right there now trying to help shape some policy as we speak. So it's, it's a really fluid and exciting and dynamic environment right now. I bet. And we have to say there's a shameless plug as well. Join your state rural water agency or <laughs> <laughs> association. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I I must say, I think the State Rural Water Association, wherever you're located, whichever state you happen to reside and or and or work in, they are going to be, I can I can almost guarantee it, an instrumental and pivotal player in trying to steer and invest and promote and make sure that this congressional investment in water infrastructure is maximized to the greatest extent they can. And state rural water associations are going to be in the the middle of it. So if you are concerned or or worried or nervous about, you know, what does this really mean? I think an excellent resource for you to turn to uh, is your state rural water association. And at nrwa.org, you'll find a, a list right there on the website of each state rural water association, their contact, their leadership, uh, and a link to their website. So I urge you to go there. Oh, yeah. Get the help. Get it fast. Get in early. Technical assistance. <laughs> I would say Absolutely. get in often. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, what are some of these federal water policy priorities you guys have worked over these past administrations to get to now. We've tried to have a, a consistent theme throughout. If you mm-hmm. watch the, the media, you know, they for years, years, past administrations and, and even in, in this one, you know, infrastructure week was kind of like a joke almost. I mean, because it was such top of mind, they'd hold hearings, they'd hold press conferences and things, and but they never really got the piece of legislation across the finish line. And so that's what's so exciting about this specific piece of legislation. But one of the things that NRWA and our, our membership, our grassroots membership at the state level and the local level got to do was testify before Congress. Some states, West Virginia, Delaware, Wyoming come to top of mind just because they had senators that sat on the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee. In fact, the, the Delaware cool. Rural Water Association hosted the chairman, uh, Tom Carper, of the EPW committee when he first introduced the Drinking Water and Wastewater Investment Infrastructure Act of 2021. That was kind of like the underlying predicate to this water infrastructure funding that was included in this bill. But they actually got to host him when he introdu- introduced that bill. I was out there. It was a really exciting awesome day back in April. So that was cool. But there's our state rural water associations. But I think everybody can agree, at least in the National Rural Water Association, from our point of view, our membership, we had to keep this consistent theme throughout all this federal testimony, press releases, press conferences. We would do things like talk about the sustainability of the water infrastructure that needed needed to be included. Sustainability is key enhanced technical assistance, especially in in rural environmental justice. That was another overarching general theme that we always pushed with our our legislators. Uh, Resilience to extreme weather. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's why we talked about Kentucky earlier. I know, right? Protecting the public and environment from PFAS, compliance with the new lead and copper rule, reducing Uh nutrient 
concentrations in source waters and source drinking water, improving the country's water workforce. That's a huge deal. And I know you've you've done work on just that topic alone in the past. Cyber attacks, that's been top of mind yeah. in, in Congress. And, and I know it in our constituency too. When Oldsmar, Florida took place, it, it really yes. startled a lot of people. Everyone's like, oh, no one will care about us. No one will will do something to us. And well, now they're seeing it. <laughs> they're, yeah. We're just as vulnerable and just as they can take advantage of a small rural community system as, as they could anybody else. And, <laughs> you know, we thought we were off the radar, but like you said, we're, we're not. And a couple other things, just limiting water service disconnections on vulnerable customers. We've talked about regionalization uh, when appropriate for water for small systems. And, and finally, uh, I just wanted to underscore a theme that we've harped on since for, for many years, mm-hmm. and that's the, the rural water circuit rider approach. Uh, we believe it's the most successful model for federal water compliance at the local level. Each state rural water association has circuit riders there. Yeah. They're at your disposal. They can help you with a whole array of issues that your system may be facing. And they can also help you provide some technical assistance as you craft a application for a state revolving loan fund application, which is the funding mechanism the Office of Water at EPA is using to get these newfound dollars out the door. And I think that that's what we should talk about next. I have really enjoyed all the work that I have done with rural water communities and associations. So I'm excited to hear that they're getting a boost, that they're getting the support they need, because it's a hard job to be there for everyone. And they they do a great job at it. So that, that's my kudos to, I appreciate to rural that. water people. And I know they do too. They're the ones that are actually doing the work. And, and yes, yeah. kudos to them. My next question is, what is the bipartisan infrastructure law and that helps engineers and operators? What is in there? Well, I'm going to highlight and bear with me, audience. There's six key items I want to hone in on that are included in the $55 billion overarching number of funding dollars that are coming through the Office of Water EPA. And for the most part, the SRF program, the tried and true since the the 1980s, since the onset of the Drinking Water and Safe Drinking Water Act and Clean Water Act, they've been using the state revolving loan funds as the best way to get the money out the door to state and local communities. And so that's what Congress is relying on as the mechanism to fund these priorities for them. So let me run through them real quick. Bear with me. Uh, right. and, and Heather, hang on. If, if, if Please stop me at any moment if it gets too in the weeds. So, okay. Uh, the, the first one is the Drinking Water State Revolving Fund. Uh, it's funded at a total of $11.7 billion over five years. This upcoming fiscal year, FY 2022, has $1.9 billion total that will be dispensed through all 50 states. In FY 2023, we've got over $2.2 billion. In FY24, we've got $2.4 billion. In FY25 and 26, we've got $2.6 billion. So the funding levels increase every year for the next five years. In FY2022 and 23, the funds will require a 10% state match, while in FY24 through 26, they require a 20% match. 49, 49% of the funds will be used to provide additional subsidy to eligible recipients in the form of assistance agreements with 100% principal forgiveness or grants or a combination. And 3% of the funding will be used for salaries and administration. And I believe EPA can use 3% of it and also to provide some technical assistance 
to make sure this money is maximized to the benefit to the communities that need it most. That's exciting because I've had people ask that, you know, how are we supposed to hire another person? How are we supposed to bring in more people to handle this? So I'm glad that that was brought into it. Everybody's going to need to ramp up from every level of government and on the technical assistance providers like us. But even these local communities are going to need to think about how to enhance their existing operations to meet the needs and to upgrade or retrofit or or enhance a, a certain project that is needed to be done. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be a Herculean effort across the board. As you're considering what to do in this new resource-rich environment, don't sell yourself short and don't, don't uh, cut any corners. Think about really being responsible in the way you and you ramp up to meet the demands of this generational funding shift and generational shift in the way uh, infrastructure, water infrastructure in particular, is being addressed by your elected officials. How about talking to us a little bit about the new dedicated line service uh, or lead service line replacement fund? I, I know a lot of people are excited about that. <laughs> that is a big deal. In fact, I'd like to, I, I want to harp on the fact that I think that was the congressional water infrastructure funding priority number one. Lead really? service line replacement. I do. I, I mean, if you look at the, the charts that they put out, uh, mm-hmm. $15 billion dollars in the drinking water SRF, it's a new dedicated service line replacement fund, but it's going to be funded through the drinking water SRF program. And it's $3 billion for each year for the next five fiscal years, FY 2022 to FY 2026. And eligible activities include identifying, planning, design, and replacement of lead service lines with 49% of those funds dedicated entirely for principal forgiveness or grants. Funds provided under this new program are not subject to the matching or cost share requirements the other items identified in in the legislation are. So this is the most money that they've dedicated and the least strings attached. They want folks to be lead free when they drink their water. And this is, I mean, that is just, they, they put their money where their mouth is on this one. And I think there's $15 billion here, which is just awesome. And I don't think Congress is done yet addressing this problem, which is even better. This is so timely because uh, I was in a training. We were we were talking about PFAS and LCR. And sure. uh, you know, the operators are like, who pays for this? Who pays for this part of the line? You know, the part that connects to us, to the part to the house, who's replacing the mains, all this kind of stuff. Because once again, small communities, you know, they have lead lines still because it's been too expensive to upgrade. And now there's this 15 billion to tap into. Oh, yes. yes. So exciting. <laughs> <laughs> there's some other stuff in there too, Heather, if you don't mind, can I just no, run through ahead. it real quick? Yeah. Cause you mentioned PFAS. There's a new drinking water SRF a dedicated fund for emerging contaminants that focuses specifically on PFAS that has $4 billion in it, 800 million for each of the next five years, uh, no matching requirements for the States. And hundred percent of those funds are dedicated to grants or principal forgiveness or a combo. And then there's also a dedicated fund for grants to small and disadvantaged communities to target emerging contaminants. And that's to the total of $5 billion, $1 billion each for the next five fiscal years. And no state matches required for that funding either. And so those two items are just 
in addition to the lead service line replacement, in addition to the you know massive appropriation for the drinking water SRF in general. So that's really cool. And then turning to wastewater infrastructure and the Clean Water State Revolving Fund, they got on par with the drinking water SRF. They got $11.7 billion over the next five years, too. They ramp up uh, incrementally every year. They start at $1.9 billion for FY 2022, $2.2 billion for 23, $2.4 for 24, $2.6 for 25 and 26. That does require a 10% state match and 20% later on in 2024 and 2026. And 49% of those funds will be used to provide eligible recipients with additional subsidy in a form of 100% principal forgiveness, grants, or a combo. And so that's really great. And they also have a, a subsection in there for emerging contaminants as well and wastewater field for 100 million for FY 2022 and 225 million for the remaining four fiscal years after that, no state match. So yeah, they've really put their nose to the grindstone and really weeded through a lot of the details and attached funding to these priorities, which is really exciting. There's something for everyone to get in on yeah. basically. Now is the time, Heather, to advance a long overdue capital project within your community. There is an opportunity to do so. And uh, your state rural water association, your state primacy agency are going to be there to help. I love the comment you made in our previous discussions that it's it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. Yes, that is a key component. It might feel like a sprint right now. It definitely does in Washington because everybody's scrambling to make sure that they can maximize this, this enthusiasm and get the sentiment across that, yeah, you know, the federal government is has heard the the demands of of the people and want to really make sure these infrastructure dollars get as far as they can. But these federal agencies, they still have to ramp up too. They've got to figure out the policies and how the programs are going to be administered and and what the the rules are, not only internally, but externally. And you know, that that's why they're leaning on the SRF program because it is it's got a such a great track record of, of success. Another item Another overarching theme that the EPA Office of Water is is dwelling on as they're ramping these efforts up is that they're going to specifically focus, especially on the outset, especially right now on low income, disadvantaged communities, underserved communities. They're emphasizing climate change and equity. So as you know, everybody is ramping up. Those are some of the priorities that they're keeping in mind as they put together the initial policies that they're going to use to get this money out the door. I want everyone to be well aware of that. I know our state rural water associations are too, as well are the state primacy agencies. We talked about it. You've mentioned it. It's going to take time for everyone to ramp up, but that's because of all, like you said, the internal planning review and, and hiring the staff and everything that, but once, once we've done all that, how are these recipients going to be chosen? I mean, is it, you know, financial need? Is it because you're shovel ready or just shovel worthy? Like what, what counts? Yes, that's a great question because how are these projects going to be chosen? That's definitely a question on the top of every operator or city manager or general manager out there that has a publicly owned treatment work that, that needs an upgrade. So how they're going to be chosen really is dependent upon the actual project itself. In the show notes, we've worked together to put a litany of resources together that EPA has put out there regarding the Clean Water SRF Fund, the 
drinking water SRF fund and eligibility requirements and and things like that, how they've historically allocated these dollars. Well, in this light, I mentioned earlier that EPA has a specific focus on low-income, disadvantaged communities, underserved communities, climate change, equity. Those are overarching themes, but it depends on the project and it depends on your state primacy agency's availability. And it actually, to be honest with you, it, it depends on the relationship you've built with them and their their sophistication. So that's why I think it is a marathon. So take your time collecting all the information that will be needed to make a persuasive application. That I can't emphasize enough because there is a lot of money, but they've got to justify these investments. And as you work with your state primacy agency and your state rural water association to craft your proposal, the eligibility requirements as you go through that exercise will come to light. You mentioned previously about you know, we're talking about who's the recipients, who's going to get chosen. What is the piece that you called the environmental justice policy? This administration has truly tried to make it a paramount key component to their deliverables for the Office of Water and for environmental protection in general. On December 2nd, Administrator Michael Reagan, who formerly worked in North Carolina, and he circulated this letter to all 50 state governors, and he wanted to highlight, there were a couple items in here in this letter that I want to highlight for you guys today. That is, target resources to disadvantaged communities, make rapid progress on lead-free water for all, tackle forever chemicals like PFAS. And then of course, partnering for progress is a huge component to the success of all this. To go back to your question about environmental justice, I think that is the environmental justice policy, EJ40, as a public policy issue, environmental justice is public health, waste management, public involvement. Equitable development and environmental justice, according to EPA right now, is an approach for meeting the needs of underserved communities through policies and programs that reduce disparities while fostering places that are healthy and vibrant. It's not unusual in these water and wastewater systems that, you know, these were built in the 70s and the 80s. They're still in the use today. You know, we've got parts of our collection systems that are 50 and 100 years old. My only question is, once this bill has happened and we've used these resources, is it going to be another 50 years before we see infrastructure again? Is it like get it in now because it might not ever be here again? That is an understandable concern. Watching Congress act or not act over the past long time, over a decade since, since a massive infrastructure bill like this is, has been passed. So every year, Congress does appropriate the clean water and and drinking water SRF programs. This Mm -hmm. particular infrastructure bill is in addition to the regular annual appropriations process that the result is additional funding for those programs every year. Another item that has been at the top of the to-do list in Congress, especially lately, I mentioned it earlier, and that's President Biden's economic agenda, the Build Back Better bill that has passed the House that has even additional funding in it for infrastructure, more not so much hard physical infrastructure, more social spending, but also in the House passed bill, which is right now pending in the United States Senate, has more funding for lead service line replacement and remediation. Actually, I think that funding at the moment has less strings attached than the drinking water SRF funding mechanism that the lead service line replacement dedicated fund goes through in this bill. But what I wanted to really harp on is that, honestly, I think there's so much money right now. And yes, you mentioned the 70s and 80s. Some of these systems, this is when they were constructed. 
I think the funding that's come to fruition now will definitely get us over a rather challenging hurdle for those systems. I think we're going to see benefits from it for a long time. And I think maybe I want to stay positive here. Congress may have learned its lesson and will be able to address ensuing forthcoming problems in a more timely manner than they did this time, just because I think the the needs are, are so acute and especially the demand in small and rural communities and communities of color and disadvantaged communities is so great that we're going to see benefits from this funding for years to come. Right now is a time to consult and collaborate with your state rural water association, state primers, state primacy agency to really identify your needs because the resources are going to be there. And just so you know, another shameless plug, your National Rural Water Association works every year in the annual appropriations process to bring uh-huh. funding, program, resource, regulatory relief initiative that we can think of that can be helpful to small and rural communities. So it's it's not just one and done. This is an ongoing effort, and that's why they've established a D.C. office to make sure that our voices are maintained and heard in Washington throughout because this work never ends. It will never end. My great-grandchildren will need water and wastewater. Absolutely. Stormwater and so forth like that. Okay, so we've touched a little bit on this, but what projects are acceptable and not acceptable? Good question. I'm going to harp on the ones that I know are acceptable because I don't want to cast any dispersions on what may not be acceptable because... I think there's a whole slew of um, problems that need solutions. And I think there's a little bit of leeway now in the way these funds could be used. I think there can be really persuasive arguments made. So I want to focus on the ones that I know are acceptable. And this is in statute underlying uh, statute in the Safe Drinking Water Act and the Clean Water Act. Okay. Um, so for the, for the drinking water SRF funds, a wide range of drinking water infrastructure projects can be included. And in fact, I tagged a eligibility handbook in the show notes that can really get you delve you down into the details of what's acceptable. But top line, treatment, transmission and distribution, sources, storage, regionalization, consolidation, storage consolidation, and even the creation of new systems. Those projects are definitely eligible right now. When it comes to the wastewater side, on the clean water SRF, projects can include the construction of municipal wastewater facilities, funding to control non-point sources of pollution, the construction of decentralized wastewater treatment systems, green infrastructure projects, protection of estuaries, and really just an array of other water quality projects in general are eligible under the clean water SRF as it stands today. And again, there's another handbook or uh, I don't know what what they titled it, but you know, eligibility resource for the clean water SRF tagged in the show notes as well uh, for your for your consumption. This is great because it brought enough just right now to cover so many situations and so many needs. I wanted to hone in a little bit too on the emerging contaminants. We mentioned PFAS earlier, the polypurfluoral alkyl substances, but what else is included in that that you know of? Well, Heather, this is above and beyond my pay grade in so many ways. You and your listeners know this stuff a lot better than me and and that ain't going to change anytime soon. But I will tell you just from cursory research that I've done and, and tracking the way we're kind of legislative nerds up here. The people that are actually implementing these programs and these provisions know so much more. But 
emerging contaminants, I think at the top of mind of Congress, the senators and Congress that actually passed this bill, the short list is TCP, dioxane, TNT, DNT, RDX, nanomaterials, NDMA, perchlorate, PFOA, PBBs, PBDEs, tungsten, and there's more uh, listed on EPA's website. And th- there's a whole emerging contaminant section of their website that I shared too on the, in the show notes that I want folks to be able to reference. Because if you've got any of these problems, there is funding and there is the will and desire and intent to fix them. So please do not be bashful in making an application to your state primacy agency because you know Congress intends for this stuff to be negated as soon as possible. It all comes back to healthier water, healthier environment, yep. really. Absolutely. You mentioned as well that December 16th, lead and copper rule. What, what is yes. going on today? So <laughs> funny. That is literally taking place. It is unfolding as we speak at the White House. The Environmental Protection Agency is going to sign or they're having a ceremony of the next iteration of the lead and copper rule. My CEO, Matt Holmes, is actually in attendance along with a lot of other executives from the water industry to make sure that we're going to be eager to implement the rules and regulations that are going to be coming along with this lead and copper rule. As a constituency, our members are going to have to abide by this. So we are eager to help them to make sure that they can do so. In addition, like we referenced earlier, the dedicated lead service line removal fund is going to coincide and go hand in hand with this rule. And and EPA leadership has it at at top of mind to really address these problems and the lead service line problem in particular. So yeah, that's happening as we speak. I think more details are going to be uh, rolled out today, track the social media, track EPA is going to put out a statement. I know that NRWA is going to put out a statement. Then it It's up to the practitioners, the folks that are listening to this podcast to actually take what this rule says and put it into practice and implement it. We stand as a resource at the ready to to help you make sense of it all and and to maximize the benefits of these rules and regulations. I loved when I was attending the webinar, the NRWA and 120 Water Held discussed the bill that there were a lot of these grants specifically for systems with 10,000 people or less for the underserved and disadvantaged communities. I loved that. <laughs> Thank you. You know, that I'm going to I'm going to take a breath there and smile because that is what your National Rural Water Association DC office dwelled on, focused on, harped on, really underscored to Congress how important these communities let me let me back up for a second there's a federal water policy paradox that I want to read to you directly from testimony that our state rural water associations their executives and their members relate every time they get the chance to in front of Congress and I'm going to do so right now because most US water utilities are small 91% of the country's approximately 50,000 drinking water supplies serve communities with fewer than 10,000 persons. 8,000 of the country's approximately 16,000 wastewater suppliers serve fewer than 10,000 persons as well. Small and rural communities often lack capacity, making it more difficult to comply with the complicated federal mandates and provide safe, affordable drinking water and sanitation due to limited economies of scale and the lack of technical expertise. A major struggle, as we all know, in the rural water and wastewater system world is that there 
are fewer resources available. These systems are regulated and held to the same standard as large systems that have access to more resources and the luxury of larger customer rates. Rural water and wastewater systems are a larger makeup of the water industry. And many times the cost to comply with federal regulations and provide service in general is much higher. Even in 2021, there are rural communities in this country that still do not have access to safe drinking water or sanitation due to the lack of population density or lack of funding. That's a paradox at the federal water policy level. This bipartisan infrastructure bill takes leaps and bounds to helping fix this problem. And now it's up to us, the practitioners, the state rural water associations, the, the folks that operate these systems or know of communities that, that need help to access these resources and these funds to make sure that everybody is living with clean, safe drinking water and having the ability to, to participate in modern life as we know it. I just get excited. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Me too. I, I think this is great. So how are these funds going to be allocated to each state and how will individual communities receive the funds? December 2nd, EPA Administrator Regan circulated a letter to all 50 state governors. And okay. within, this, within this letter, you know, he highlights some of his overarching themes and policies and desires. I'm looking at the letter as we speak, but he also included in there a summary of the 2022 Environmental Protection Agency's state revolving funds for states, tribes, and territories. And literally, there's a, a chart on the fourth page of the letter that highlights the amount of funding each state is receiving and includes also funding items for territories and, and the tribes. And the grand total at this moment is $7.4 billion. And that is less than a month after this historic law came to fruition. And so that just is a testament to EPA's desire to really expedite the resources and funding that are included in this bill to get it out the door as quickly as possible. So honestly, your state primacy agency is under the impression right now that funding is available through their SRF at these FY 2022 levels for the fiscal year to be tapped into. And they've got all these fact sheets and reasons why they're going to put this money to good use included in that letter. So I urge you, it's it's in the show notes too, to go take a look at that if you're interested, or it, it might even answer some of your questions as to the amount of funding that's available in your state. So uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was really amazed and very, I'm very impressed and applaud EPA, U.S. Office of Water on their ability to turn that around so quickly. Since we've got links in the show notes, you know who to hunt down. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Who's got the money? <laughs> we've mentioned this throughout the whole presentation, but just in summary, how are these state rural water organizations going to be affected? State rural water associations exist to provide training and technical assistance to your utility. I mean, that's why we've got this whole program, this whole National Rural Water Association effort is to support state rural water associations to connect to the local level, to the utility in a small and rural community that needs some guidance, needs some expertise. And that's why state rural water association is, exists is to help provide them with the expertise that they may be lacking. They can connect you, your local utility with state and federal resources. And because of this legislation that we're talking about today, EPA will be depending on technical assistance providers like rural water to deliver the results Congress intended with this bill. So we are going to be a key player and, and we're going to be instrumental in helping EPA maximize the benefits of this legislation. 
and I love the fact that there's training involved as well. It's not like here's a form, figure it out, you know, <laughs> get your yeah. money. Kind of thing. It's you know, hey, there's support for all of this, not only on the administrative side, but you know, support to help people learn this. And before I forget, because I did pull some operators before we talked, what kind of questions they had. The one that we haven't covered yet is, will sanitary districts be covered in the funding? I'm glad you asked that because they certainly are included in the funding. Um, yeah, sanitary districts are eligible for project funding. And it, like I've said many times during this podcast, I urge you to get with your State Rural Water Association to discuss how best to approach an application regarding an issue within your sanitary district or at your wastewater system that that needs attention. Usually at this section of the podcast, I'm like, how to talk to the engineer. But this is really, where should people look to get started and how do they use this? So where would you lead them to? Well, of course, the show notes of this very impressive podcast that you've been running is a great place to start, <laughs> Heather. Um, All right. Your State Rural Water Association is going to be a great place to start. They're going to be inundated with requests, I know, um, for help. So, you know, bear with them. But they are definitely at the state level going to be the best expert that I can think of that can help you leverage these dollars and leverage these resources and work with them through the application process because the State Rural Water Association is working hand in hand with your state primacy agency and the and the SRF funding mechanisms. So where should you get started? State Rural Water Association, how do you use this? The US EPA quoted this on their website. I wanted to highlight it for everybody. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency will be making significant investments in the health, equity, and resilience of American communities by utilizing funding from this law. With unprecedented funding to support water infrastructure, EPA's goal is to improve people's health and safety, create good-paying jobs, and increase climate resilience through the country. How do you use this? Well, you tap into these funds, you leverage these funds to advance a long overdue capital project within your community. And that's the intention of Congress. That's the intention of the Office of Water. And uh, that's the intention of your State Rural Water Association is to provide you with the expertise and technical assistance to make sure that that project and that result in your community is realized. And at the moment, the communities that need it most are the are the lowest hanging fruit. That's EPA's targets. Those are anybody's targets if they so choose to take the initiative and, and get involved and try to make an application and pursue federal funding for, for their needs. I need to remember, too, that there are grants for those that are larger than the 10,000 people as well. Correct? Correct. Okay. So it's not just the 10,000 and less. Yes, you're right. It's not all small and rural communities, but that is who our membership at National Rural Water, that's who we we predominantly focus on. But yeah, this, this bill is just absolutely transformational in not just the water sector, but literally every major infrastructure sector as well. And that includes not just small and rural communities and for every infrastructure sector, but also larger metropolitan utilities and uh, cities. And yeah, it's it's absolutely actually astonishing how big it is and how many resources are being put forward. Overarching, I didn't even say this at the beginning, overarching, it's a over trillion dollar bill, $1.2 trillion dollars. $550 billion in new spending in appropriations. So yeah, when you go to your city council meeting, water is just one item on the docket that was funded at historic levels. So just be aware of that when your community's thinking a whole of community approach on how to enhance themselves, there's resources to do so in every facet, in every sector that matters. I'm just excited. From the facilities that I've seen there, I've seen some that are just barely getting by with just duct tape, sheer grit, and the skill of the operator. 
I know. And you know, this is going to relieve so many ulcers. <laughs> No. I think oh, I'm hoping <laughs> I think Congress finally heard those uh, those screams and those midnight phone calls and for a water there's communities examples 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 in each small community in each state that they can make the case I want to do another shameless plug every year we have a a national rural water rally where everybody comes to Washington, D.C., and they get to interface with their elected members. And each one of those meetings, a local community comes with the state rural water delegation and tells a story like that. And so it was high time Congress acted on their behalf. And uh, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more because there has been a lot of pain and anguish over the years and not just in emergency situations. And we're offering water 24-7. It could happen. A problem could occur at any moment. And water and wastewater utility operators actually step up to the plate, no matter how difficult it is to, to fix the problem. So hopefully in time, they're going to understand that, that Congress is, has heard these concerns of theirs and is trying to address them. I'm just excited. I, I mean, I can hear the excitement in your voice too, but you know, this is life-changing for the water and wastewater industry. And I want to encourage everyone, get out there and look at these links. If you want some more information in the show notes, start applying, <laughs> start rallying the troops and, and get this. With that, Michael, I'd like to transition into our water tidbit for this week. Please have at it. All right. So this is a section of the show that I dedicate to my mother. And today we're going to cover glaciers. I didn't realize they were as cool as they are. I'll be honest. Did you have a chance to read through it as well? Oh, yeah. Perfect. (laughs) So I did not know that there was like a minimum you had to have to be a glacier. You have to be 0.1 square kilometers, which is almost 25 acres. Or as I saw on Facebook, you Americans put everything in football field lengths. Mm-hmm. So Absolutely. that's 19 football fields. <laughs> <laughs> put it into a, yeah, I, I can understand that a lot better than kilometers. Yeah. <laughs> I've ran football field once, so I remember that. But the largest glacier on earth is 60 miles wide and about 270 miles long. It's huge, but I didn't know that they moved as quickly as 50 feet per day. So you don't want to live at the bottom of a glacier because, you know, in a couple of days, it's, it's going to run you over. That was fascinating to me, too. I did not know. That. Yeah, I was like, oh, don't get real estate property right there. No, no. And I found out that glaciers are in 47 different countries, even near the equator. But the only continent without one is Australia. And I'm sure they're very jealous about that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why they weren't blessed with the glacier, but you know they, they don't have it. And it's best to think of these glaciers as really slow moving rivers. I don't know if you've ever heard of the phrase rock flower before. No, not me. Well, it had been many, many moons. I remember hearing it that once when I was a kid because my dad was all into National Geographic. But rock flower is basically as glaciers grate along the earth, they'll grind bedrock into this really fine powdery substance. And when it gets into a body of water, it's really too fine to sink. So it's been, it's just this lightest like talc sometimes and it's suspended, but it turns water turquoise blue. Hmm. I was like, oh, I wonder how many of those cool pictures I've seen were actually from rock flower. Yeah, good point. Yeah. And well, unfortunately for my children now, when we watch documentaries, I'll be like, that's rock flower. (laughs) (laughs) Uh Uh-oh, me too now, me too. (laughs) There you go. But there are... 
they're typically two different kinds of glaciers. One is the alpine, and they do not yodel but they do flow from mountaintops to valleys. And then there's the continental glaciers. And these are the, the large flat horizontal ones. Uh, mm -hmm. These are generally substantially bigger on the counterparts. You're going to see these on the North and South Pole kind of areas. Something else I found out about it is that these glaciers hold 69% of our world's fresh water supply. That's jaw dropping. And I'm like, crud, we should harvest some glacier, but... <laughs> <laughs> but you don't want to. <laughs> mm -mm, no. I was actually in California when I was talked about the snow being so severe in the Northeast area one winter that they were actually pushing snow into the ocean. The California is like, send it our way. <laughs> we, we could use that. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, uh, it's not uh, evenly distributed. No, I know. But uh, there was one more program I wanted to talk about real quick. It's called the OMG which stands for NASA's Oceans Melting Greenland Program. OMG. OMG. Oh, <laughs> Oceans Melting Greenland. <laughs> <laughs> and this is led by uh, the scientist Josh Willis. And that whole role is to understand how the ocean plays into Greenland's glaciers and then leverage that information and data on you know temperatures and the glaciers and so forth in the area around Greenland to the rest of the world and help us understand how fast that ice is melting, how fast we could see global sea levels rise. And I'm like, I thought NASA is only a space. I never thought of them having something, you know, land-based, but I'm really glad that someone's looking at this. Me too. Me too. It is fascinating. And it's just amazing to see all the resources that the federal government, you know, NASA, it's a federally funded agency mm -hmm. there that they are funded through Congress, just like this water infrastructure bill is. And they are just doing some really fascinating research and really being on the forefront of this stuff is paramount to uh, keeping a successful civilization going. So more, <laughs> more kudos to NASA and, and Congress for knowing that that's important. It's pretty cool. And once again, we've mentioned the show notes quite often uh, this yeah. time. There's going to be all the information on the OMG program and Glacier stuff will also be in the show notes, but also the Kentucky Agriculture Relief Fund link, as well as everything we could think of that really would help you with the bill. So, Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. This has been a lot of fun. <laughs> Heather, it's my pleasure. And I think it's time to get to work. The The hard stuff has just begun. So I'm glad we were able to do this today and uh, looking forward to, to seeing the results. All right. Thank you. And thank you for joining us on Water Break. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to the Water Break podcast brought to you by Probiotic Solutions. Probiotic Solutions offers a broad spectrum line of biostimulant nutrient products for bioremediation of water, wastewater, and soil. Find more information about our products and the show notes for this podcast at probiotic.com.